Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Is climate change an impending existential threat or a serious but manageable problem that we can tackle with innovation and human ingenuity? Zeke Hausfather joins this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, to explain the basics of climate modeling and give a clear-eyed assessment of the risks we face and the measures we can take. Zeke is a climate scientist and energy systems analyst. He's the climate research lead for Stripe and a research scientist at Berkeley Earth. Zeke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. How do we know that our planet is warming? And secondarily, how do we know the actions of people are playing a key role? So that's a great question. Um, in terms of how we know it's warming, we've been monitoring the Earth's climate uh, with reasonably dense measurements since the mid-1800s. Uh, that's when groups like NASA, NOAA, the UK Headley Center, my own Berkeley Earth Group, uh, have been able to put together you know, reliable global surface temperature estimates. Uh, and we've seen in the period since, since, well, so that's what, since the 1980s? Uh, 1850. 1850. So NASA was yeah. not around in 1850. No, but enough measurements were being taken both at weather stations around the world and on ships in the oceans that we can reconstruct global temperatures, you know, with an accuracy of a, a couple tenths of a degree going back that far. You know, know that the world has warmed by about 1.2 degrees centigrade since 1850, uh, with the vast majority of that warming, about one degree of it happening since 1970. Um, so that isn't in much dispute in the scientific community at all. Now, going further back is harder, obviously. <laughs> we only invented the thermometer in the you know early 1700s. Uh, there's a few locations on land that go back that far. Um, but to go back further in time, we need to rely on what we call climate proxies, uh, things like ice cores, tree rings, coral sediments, pollen in lakes, you know, various natural factors that are in some way related to the temperature um, when those things occurred. Uh, and those have much higher uncertainties, of course. Uh, but we do know using those reconstructions that current temperature levels are probably unprecedented in at least the last 2000 years um, and are at the high end of anything we've seen in the last 120,000 years or so. Um, certainly, if, if current temperatures were to stay at today's levels for another century, they'd be higher than anything we've seen in, in 120,000 years. Uh, but it's harder to precisely make those claims because the time resolution of these indirect proxy measurements is very coarse when we go back further in time. So you might have, you know, one ice core measurement reflect a hundred year average period, for example, rather than a specific year. Um, so we know from the temperature record that the world is warm. Now, how do we know that human activity is playing a role? Well, we've known since the mid 1800s uh, due to pioneering work by folks like John Tyndall or uh, Arrhenius, uh, that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and that greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, water vapor, methane are critical to maintain a habitable planet. You know, without greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, the earth would be a, a snowball and life would probably not exist. Um, we also know that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased pretty dramatically. Uh, so we have measurements from ice cores going back about 
800,000 years uh, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you know, at a, a reasonably high resolution. And because carbon dioxide is well mixed, knowing it in one location in one ice core gives us a good picture of carbon dioxide for the whole planet. And we know that prior to the year 1850, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, you know, varied between uh, about uh, 170 to 280 parts per million. You know, they're lower during ice age periods, they're higher during warmer interglacial periods. Uh, but since the 1850s, that value has increased dramatically. The, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased by about 50%. Uh, it's gone from 280 parts per million, which it was over the last 10,000 years uh, since the end of the last ice age, up to about 420 parts per million today. And that reflects a huge amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Like, I, I don't think people realize quite the magnitude we're talking about. Uh, the amount of carbon dioxide that humans have added to the atmosphere by digging up stuff from underground and burning it is roughly equal in mass to the entire biosphere. We took every single bit of life on Earth and burned it. That was about how much CO2 that we put up in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Or to put it in another way, it's it's equal in mass to all of everything humans have ever built. The pyramids, every skyscraper, every road. We took all that mass and put it up into the atmosphere. That's the amount of CO2 we've emitted. And so that's had a pretty big effect on what we call the, the radiative forcing of our climate. So essentially the amount of outgoing long-wave radiation or, or heat <laughs> in common parlance uh, that gets absorbed and re-radiated back toward the surface. Uh, and the estimate- And that's the um, sort of key mechanism we're talking about here, right? Yeah. So yeah. sunlight comes in from the sun, which provides pretty much all the Earth's energy. Um, it gets absorbed by the surface of the Earth and re-radiated as heat. That heat goes back up to space. Ideally, those two things should be in equilibrium. The amount of energy entering the Earth system matches the amount that leaves the Earth system and the Earth stays a happy, healthy temperature. Uh, what we've seen in the last century, uh, and we can verify this over the last few decades directly through satellite observations, is the amount of heat entering the Earth system is larger than the amount of heat leaving the Earth system. So the Earth is out of equal thermal equilibrium and is heating up. Uh, most of that heat is going into the oceans, about 90% of it, uh, but about 10% of that heat that's trapped goes into the atmosphere. Um, and that's responsible for the warming we've seen. Looking forward, uh, various climate models, which is what we use to sort of forecast what's going to happen next. It looks at what we've already put into the atmosphere and uh, what we're continuing to put into the atmosphere. And it makes a forecast about how that will impact temperatures going forward. Do I have that part right? Yep. Okay. So... So based on what these models are saying and what is reasonable to expect in coming decades as far as temperature increases and their impacts? So the amount of future warming we end up having depends largely on how much CO2 and other greenhouse gases we emit. Um, you know, if we keep emissions roughly at current levels for the rest of the century, so we're emitting uh, about 40 billion tons of CO2 per year. If we keep that steady, we don't increase it at all. Uh, we expect somewhere in the range of three degrees warming, centigrade warming by the end of the century. So that would be um, you know, a bit above five degrees Fahrenheit warming globally uh, relative to the pre-industrial period or 1850. So we've already experienced 1.2 degrees C. We'd have another you know, 1.8 degrees C or so on top of that by the end of the century. Now, if we emit more, it could be higher than that. If we emit less, it could be lower than that. 
That said, that's sort of the average estimate across the 40 different modeling centers around the world that, that do these sort of exercises. Um, in reality, the climate is a hugely complex system. And when you're trying to project the response of the climate to our emissions, you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty around what we call feedbacks in the climate system. So as an example, as we warm the surface, we get more evaporation and the atmosphere can sort of hold more water vapor before rain falls out as the air is warmer. This is a, a fairly well-known physical relationship. Uh, and so for every degree warming, you get about 7% more water vapor in the atmosphere. Now water vapor itself is a greenhouse gas and so that enhances the warming the world experiences. Uh, and because it's warmer, that water vapor can stay in the atmosphere because usually water vapor itself is very, very short-lived and can't force the climate by itself because it just rains out if you get too much. Um, there's also uncertainties in how clouds respond to our emissions. So more water vapor in the atmosphere leads to more cloud formation in some regions, higher temperatures and changing wind patterns lead to changing cloud dynamics. Um, our emissions of other things like aerosols, uh, small particles from, from burning fossil fuels also affect cloud formation and how that all pans out uh, and how those clouds change the balance of, of heat trapped versus heat reflected varies a lot across models. Um, and for all these reasons, you know, we, we like to give a range of what we call climate sensitivity, which is essentially how sensitive is the climate to our emissions. And we usually define that as if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is roughly what we're on track for by the end of the century today. Um, you know, we've already increased it by 50%. Uh, how much warming do we get at equilibrium? Um, and that value is generally around three degrees C per doubling of CO2. Uh, but with a pretty wide range. In the most recent IPCC report, we said it could be anywhere from 2.5 degrees C, you know, at the, the low end um, of the likely range to about 4.5 degrees um, at the high end. Uh, or sorry, four, 4 degrees is the likely range. 2.5 to 4 is the likely range. Uh, 2 degrees to 5 degrees is the sort of very likely range that we gave in the most recent IPCC report. I, I recently watched an Apple uh, miniseries, Apple TV miniseries called Extrapolations, and it looked at uh, climate change, like and how it would affect us. It was uh, over over the entire century. And then that was the number they really fixated on, three degrees Celsius. The 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 environment they showed, it was it was pretty chaotic. Lots of very, very bad heat waves, um, you know, hurricanes, uh, you know, flooding civilization wasn't going to get wiped out or anything, but it, it seemed pretty nasty. So so are we talking kind of really nasty climate effects from three degrees of warming Celsius? So when we say three degrees, it, it sounds like a very small number, you know, especially to us Americans who are used to talking about things in Fahrenheit. Um, but even, you know, when we think about the temperature from day to day, it might change, let's say, five and a half degrees Fahrenheit uh, tomorrow. And, you know, that's noticeably warmer five and a half degrees Fahrenheit is the difference between, you know, 85 degrees and, and a bit above 90 degrees. Uh, but it doesn't sound huge. But the problem is that's a global average number and no one lives in the global average. In fact, the global average is mostly ocean. Uh, it turns out that where people do live on land is warming about 50% faster than the world as a whole. So if we talk about three degrees centigrade, or let's talk Fahrenheit for a moment, let's say 5.5 degrees Fahrenheit over land, that's, you know, increase that by 50%. So let's say eight degrees. Uh, Fahrenheit uh, globally over land, where we all live, you know, even higher than that in uh, high latitude regions like the Arctic, we have bigger feedbacks associated with snow melting and exposing darker surfaces. Um, so some regions are going to see really big changes. Uh, to put this number in perspective, the last ice age, which I think everyone would acknowledge was a very different planet than we have today, 
uh, was only about six degrees centigrade colder than current temperatures globally. Now, obviously, it was much colder in the, the northern latitudes, which were covered by ice sheets, um, but the tropics were, were not that much colder. And so it averages to about six degrees difference. Uh, and so that would have impacts. Exactly what those impacts are be uh, depends a lot on the systems we're talking about and the adaptive capacity of those systems. So the natural world, I think in many ways, is going to be the worst hit by these changes. There's a lot of plant and animal species that live in fairly narrow ecological niches, uh, and particularly in a world that's very fragmented by you know, roads and human habitation. It's a lot harder for those plant and animal, animal species to migrate to, to more temperate regions um, to be able to survive. Uh, and so certainly there's a concern around, you know, large scale extinction of many plant and animal species that can no longer, you know, live in the ecological niches that they've adapted to over the last, you know, tens of thousands of years um, and, and can't migrate quickly enough to, to adapt to that. In terms of impacts to human systems, you know, there's a lot of different impacts from climate change um, and the degree to which those are catastrophic is going to depend a lot on how wealthy we are and how well we can adapt to it. Um, you know, if we're if by the end of the century we're in a world that's similar today that has huge amounts of inequality with you know billions of people living at a dollar a day, I would worry a lot about the ability of, of people in those uh, societies to adapt to sort of more widespread extreme heat events, you know, larger floods associated with more water vapor in the atmosphere, sea level rise, some of these other impacts. If we live in a world where we're all very wealthy and you know relatively equal on a you know country by country basis and and within countries. Uh, then, you know, we have a much bigger ability to build seawalls, to have air conditioning inside, to genetically engineer crops to be more heat tolerant, right. you know, the, the many other ways that humans can adapt to these changes. Um, and so I think in many ways, I see climate change less as an existential risk by itself and more as an existential risk multiplier. You know, if we are in a world of weak institutions, of failing governments, of high inequality, I see climate as something that could help push societies over the edge. Um, but I don't necessarily think at least a three degree world would be one that is the end of, of civilization and by any stretch of the imagination uh, if we get our act together on these other issues. What is sort of the, the the business as usual forecast? And then what is the, we really get serious about policy and we can talk about what those policies are that reduce carbon emissions? Yeah, well, the good news is business as usual has already been changing a fair bit. Like nowadays, it looks like business as usual is global emissions staying relatively flat. You know, a decade ago, it seemed like doubling or tripling global emissions by the end of the century would not be out of the question. You know, certainly if you extrapolated the trends from previous decades, that's where we were headed. Um, you know, nowadays, global coal use has largely plateaued um, and arguably is, is going to shrink in coming years because um, we have cheaper alternatives. You know, electric vehicles are taking off. Um, there's many other technologies that are being developed and becoming increasingly cheap. And so it's harder to imagine a world where we're still burning massive amounts of coal, oil and gas in 2100. And, uh, and, is that, and does that make sort of the very worst case scenarios that maybe we were talking about a decade ago just highly unlikely? It certainly makes the, the emissions outcome, the worst yeah. case emission outcomes, highly unlikely. If we look at three degrees, for example, you know, that could really end up anywhere between you know, two degrees and above four degrees if we get unlucky um, because of the uncertainty and how the climate system responds to our emissions um, because the earth is such a complex system. And so climate change is both planning for the central outcome, but also trying to mitigate those risks. Um, and so in some ways we want to reduce emissions, not just to 
to get that that mean down, but also as an insurance policy against the like five or ten percent, you know, more catastrophic potential outcomes there. Uh, and so I don't think we're necessarily completely out of the woods on a 4C world by the end of the century if we roll sixes on all the proverbial climate dice. Uh, but I think we have made a lot of progress in making those outcomes less likely. Um, so today we're headed toward, as I mentioned earlier, about three degrees of warming if emissions stay relatively constant or a little bit below three degrees. Um, but we can do much better than that. You know, we can reduce emissions, um, we can develop new technologies, um, and we can get them widely adopted. Uh, and if we do that, and if we get emissions to zero by, say, 2070 or so globally, uh, then we limit warming to below two degrees. Um, if we get emissions to zero by 2050, which is going to be a much harder lift, um, given the amount of infrastructure in place today that relies on fossil fuels, um, then we could limit warming to, you know, maybe about 1.6, 1.7 degrees. Uh, and if we build lots of machines to remove carbon from the atmosphere, plant lots of trees, you know, do other things to, to actually get negative emissions, uh, you know, models suggest we could get temperatures down to 1.5 degrees, uh, you know, only 0.3 degrees above where we are today by the end of the century. When I look at what our responses might be, I tend to think what will happen to emissions in a world where our responses will be constrained by our, our low collective tolerance for suffering and pain and <laughs> deprivation and sacrifice. To me, that that that's the that that's a pretty important constraint. Because uh, if there's one lesson I think we learned from the pandemic is people don't like shortages. We don't like to rough it in any way. So in a world where, where at least in the West, that's our that's our attitude. How do we then that how do we get emissions down in a somewhat timely manner? So I think a lot of it relies both on the combination of human ingenuity. Uh, and, you know, governments playing a role in catalyzing that ingenuity and, and allowing these technologies to scale. You know, we've seen the biggest successes in mitigating climate change in technologies that slot in nicely to replace things that we enjoy today. You know, we don't talk about it much, but Texas is the renewable energy capital of the U.S. today because it's cheaper to generate electricity with the wind and sun there than it is to burn coal and gas. Um, similarly, we've seen an explosion of electric vehicles in places like China and Europe, and you know the U.S. is catching up, uh, not necessarily because everyone there is a tree hugger, but because they're really fun to drive and they perform better and are lower cost in some cases than conventional vehicles. And so the more we can follow that model of developing new technologies that don't involve sacrifice, that don't involve necessarily giving up things we enjoy today, I think the more successful we're going to be. And that's led to a lot of money being spent on these things. You know, the last in the last year, the globe spent about $1.1 trillion on mitigation technologies. So renewable energy, electric vehicles, nuclear power, um, heat pumps, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's up from, you know, $200 million a year uh, or so, you know, a decade before or 15 years before. Uh, and so we're really on this acceleration of, of private sector and government spending on these technologies. Uh, but I think government does play a role here. You know, I think most economists would acknowledge that what we're dealing with here is an externality. And by an externality, I mean, it's something that has a social cost, but no one individually pays for it when they put carbon dioxide or other emissions in the atmosphere. And so there has to be some role of internalizing that externality, either through, you know, as economists would like to do a price on carbon, or in a world where you can't do that for many reasons, uh, subsidizing the good stuff to so essentially account for the benefits it has of, of displacing fossil fuels, both in terms of their effect on climate change but also conventional pollution. Like I think we discount uh, a lot, particularly living in a place like the US, which has done a, a lot of work on this, like how disastrous fossil fuels are for public health 
you know, there's somewhere in the range of a couple million people dying globally, uh, dying prematurely globally from uh, pollution, um, particularly outdoor air pollution. And if you go to a place like India or China and walk around outside, you know, it's <laughs> it's pretty catastrophic some days in, in terms of the brown soup that is the air. Um, and so we get a lot of co-benefits uh, by cleaning up these conventional pollutants, particularly in places like Southeast Asia uh, or South Asia. Uh, as well as reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. Go, uh, reducing emissions, going to zero emissions, pulling emissions out of the air. Do these scenarios work with just renewable energy sources or or is this a world that's using you know nuclear energy in some form? Far more so, than what we're currently we currently are. So I think we necessarily need, a variety of energy sources here. Uh, and there's been a lot of work done in recent years by the energy modeling community on this front um, that suggests that, you know, renewables are great. You know, solar is super, super cheap, to be honest, a lot cheaper today than any of us thought it would be a couple decades ago. Mm-hmm. You know, wind is increasingly cheap, um, but they're also intermittent. You know, the sun doesn't shine all the time. The wind doesn't blow all the time. You know, batteries are part of the solution to deal with that, but they're not a perfect solution. And so we tend to find that you get a much lower cost in scenarios where you also have a sizable chunk, maybe 20, 30, 40% of your energy coming from what we call clean firm generation. Things like nuclear, like enhanced geothermal, uh, potentially fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage, um, though those have some challenges in in implementation, uh, to sort of support large amounts of renewable energy on the grid. Um, You end up with a much more expensive system if you try to shoehorn in like 100% renewables. Uh, And to be honest, it's pretty unnecessary. So I think we are going to see, and we're already starting to see bigger investments in things like next generation nuclear. Um, I think we just need to figure out how to build them on time and on budget. Um, You know, the biggest problem with the nuclear industry in the US, you know, certainly regulations have contributed to it. Um, but I, I think it's just our inability to build these giant bespoke mega projects. You know, nuclear goes super over budget for the same reason the big dig in Boston does. You have this 10 year long, you know, many, many billion dollar mega project uh, that has construction delays and all these other problems. And so the more we can learn from what renewables have gotten right, make things small, modular, pumped out in an assembly line, and, you know, less contingent on these giant construction projects, I think the, the better outcomes we'll see for things like nuclear. There's an economist, he he passed fairly recently, Martin Weitzman from Harvard, and Mm -hmm. he he wrote about the economics of climate change. And there's sort of one one quote that always sticks in my mind. He wrote that deep structural uncertainty about the unknown unknowns of what might go very wrong with the climate is coupled with essentially unlimited downside liability on possible planetary damages and a non-negligible probability of a collapse of planetary welfare. So he's talking about sort of these, you, you can't write off the possibility that we get some very bad outcomes. And I guess that's what worries me. If we're doing something to the atmosphere that we've never done before, and you know, what if the models are are wrong and we get some really catastrophic, that really goes, that really becomes a, a true existential risk. How much should I worry about that? So I think we're all worried about unknown unknowns. Uh, and for me, the odds of those happening, which are somewhat unknowable <laughs> by definition, uh, increase the more we push the Earth out of you know the climate we've seen for the past few million years. Um, so right now we're around the range of what we saw in the West interglacial period about 120,000 years ago. Uh, if we get temperatures up to three degrees uh, centigrade globally, 
you know, will be out of the range of, of anything we've seen for the last two million years or so, if not further back. And we know if we go further back into the Earth's history, there's some scary stuff back there. Like There's periods where we see very rapid increases of temperature associated with 90% extinction of all life on Earth, uh, like the Paleo-Eocene thermal maximum. And we don't have great explanations for all these things. You know, um, a good example is uh, for warmer periods in the Earth's past, we think there's a mechanism where if temperatures get high enough, you know, maybe five degrees above where they are uh, in, in the pre-industrial period or, you know, four, a bit above four degrees above where we are today, uh, suddenly all the stratocumulus cloud decks that cover much of the Earth's oceans disappear. And that leads to another four degrees warming on top of that. You know, that sort of behavior seems to help explain some of these rapid warming uh, events in the Earth's more distant past. Um, now, we think we're pretty far from experiencing something of like that today, but maybe our models are wrong. Or maybe the Earth is, you know, much more sensitive than we think. And, and you know, again, rolling sort of sixes on the, the climate sensitivity and, and carbon cycle feedback dice, you know, lead us into those sort of conditions. Uh, and so, you know, Marty uh, Weitzman, uh, who I did have the pleasure of knowing before he passed, uh, he had a great phrase to sum up that quote, which is that when it comes to climate change, this thing is in the tail. It's the, which is a very nerdy way to put it, but the tails of these probability distribution functions, um, the, the low probability, but high impact events uh, are really what should drive a lot of our concern around this uh, and, you know, push us to, to reduce emissions more than we otherwise would if we were just planning for the, the most likely outcome. Yeah, people will say, well, what if the models are what if the models are wrong and they assume they're only going to be wrong to the benefit of humanity? They maybe they're wrong to the to the detriment of humanity. Uh, uh we talked about a little bit about like re you know, reducing uh these emissions in the area of carbon capture. You pull it, you pull it out of the air. How how close is that technology uh to being something that can scale? So when we talk about carbon capture, you know, that's that's often a different thing than when we talk about carbon removal. So carbon capture generally means taking an existing that could be trees too, plant. right? Yeah, but but carbon capture is mostly taking an existing fossil fuel plant, like coal, oil, and gas plant, sticking a unit on that captures the carbon coming out of it, uh, and putting that underground. And there's a lot of funding for that in the new Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the record on that over the last few decades has been a bit mixed. It's it's been hard for folks to make the economics work in practice. It's really complicated technically, but you know a lot of folks are confident that we can get there with some of those technologies. Um, if you know, a coal plant with carbon capture is going to be cheaper than a nuclear plant or a renewable plant is a separate question. And, and I'm a lot more skeptical on the economics of, of carbon capture there. Now, carbon dioxide removal is, is a slightly different thing. And there we're talking about technologies that don't stop emissions from coming out of a smokestack, but instead take carbon that's already in the atmosphere and pull it back out. Um, and most of our models suggest that we are going to need a lot of that down the road, in part because we can't fully get rid of all of the emissions from all of the parts of our economy. And the real challenge with climate change, or what I like to call the brutal math of climate change, is that as long as our emissions remain above zero, the Earth continues to warm. You know, CO2 remains in the atmosphere for an extremely long period of time. Uh, it takes about 400,000 years to fully clear out a ton of fossil CO2 we emit today through natural processes. Uh, and so, you know, we end up needing a lot of carbon removal to both balance out what we call residual emissions, uh, and potentially to deal with overshoot. You know, if we if we figure out that we really don't want temperatures to go above 1.5 degrees, but they're headed toward 1.7, we're going to have to pull a bunch of carbon out of the atmosphere to bring temperatures back down. Um, now, it's only a small part of the solution. Maybe you know, 10% of of this all, the solution to climate change writ large is carbon dioxide removal. 
But for a problem as big as climate change, you know, 10% still matters a lot since solar is probably 20%, electric vehicles are probably 20%, heat pumps might be 10%, you know. Um, and there's a lot of technologies people are developing to do that. Uh, direct air capture is the one that gets a lot of press, um, you know, the sort of big fans that suck carbon out of the air, uh, though they're incredibly energy intensive. Um, but there's a lot of ways that leverage natural processes as well. You know, planting trees is a good one, though it has a lot of challenges in keeping the carbon in those trees in a warming world, uh, particularly as we see more wildfires, more, you know, pine bark beetle outbreaks that used to die in cold winter temperatures and don't anymore. Um, and so, you know, it's it's hard to justify planting trees as a, a way of permanently taking carbon out of the atmosphere, but it's still quite valuable. Um, there's also a lot of interesting work being done around using biomass to sequester carbon. So taking residues from commercial timber operations, um, burning them and, and putting their carbon content underground, uh, something called BECS or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage uh, that a lot of people are excited about. Uh, and then, you know, there's other interesting ways uh, to leverage the natural carbon cycle. Um, for example, over long periods, the weathering of uh, certain types of rocks like basalt or olivine um, drives a lot of atmospheric CO2 absorption you know, over, over the course of millions of years. And so a lot of scientists are trying to figure out ways to speed that up. You know, if you take rock dust and spread it on farm fields, you know, it can help um, manage the pH of soils, it can add some nutrients. And it turns out that as that the basalt dust weathers, it absorbs carbon from the atmosphere, turns it into stable bicarbonate, and then flows out to the ocean and eventually forms limestone on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and so, you know, stuff like that, or adding alkalinity directly to the ocean to, to counteract ocean uh, acidification can also lead to more um, CO2 uptake from the air because the amount of carbon dioxide the ocean absorbs in the atmosphere depends on how acidic the surface level of the layers of the water are. Um, so scientists are working on tons of different technologies here. And, and actually my day job these days with, with Stripe and Frontier is, is uh, helping support companies to do that. Um, so there's lots of exciting stuff there. But whenever we talk about carbon dioxide removal, it is always important to emphasize that this stuff is expensive and it only makes sense to do at scale in a world where we're already cutting emissions dramatically. Like if you you keep burning fossil fuels willy nilly and spend a ton of money on you know a bit of carbon dioxide removal, it's not going to make any difference. Why are you interested in this subject? Um, I think it's a underexplored area, um, and certainly until the last few years, no one was really putting any money or resources into it at scale. Um, and it's something that is going to have to be an important part of the solution in the next few decades. And so, you know, I think this is the decade that we should be spending resources to figure out what works and what can scale for decades to come. You know, we, we probably should spend about 1% of the money we spend on reducing emissions, um, but historically we've been spending a lot less than that. And, and, why, and why are you also more broadly interested in the entire topic uh, of, of climate change rather than, I don't know, tax policy or something? <laughs> um, I mean, I come to it from a scientific background, so I just find the Earth's climate fascinating. It's super complex. It's you know hard to fully understand. Um, we've really made leaps and bounds in progress over the last few decades, but there's so much we still don't know. And so, you know, it, it's just a fascinating area from a scientific standpoint. Uh, but it's also one where the importance to society is is quite large. You know, I try not to wade too much into the policy solutions to it, uh, but certainly, you know, helping understand the likely impacts uh, of our actions, you know, affects a lot of, of choices that policymakers and others make. Uh, there's no one right answer, you know, to your question earlier, you know, people debate renewables versus nuclear and all these other things. Um, but knowing what the impacts of climate change are, what the risks are, and how we can actually 
get to certain outcomes based on our decisions, I feel like is, is really important to, to set the stage for, for people to use the science in the real world. Uh, and it's exciting to work in an area of science where there is a practical real world application of it. I'm not just studying one plant species that lives on top of one mountain in a remote part of the world. You know, we're looking at these big questions that affect everyone uh, over the next century. Fantastic. And I think you've explained uh, some of these big questions and what's going on fantastically. Zeke, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. <laughs>